I'm Dr. Mandy Leto. I am an executive coach and a former investment banker. And my leadership lesson is if you are burnt out and hanging by a thread, pull back to 30,000 feet and ask yourself, has all the color and fun and all of the sustaining habits, have those all gone out of my life? And is my 80-year-old self face-palming looking at me in my current existence? Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we hear from Mandy Leto, a former investment banker who suffered her own serious burnout, turned executive coach and enough podcast host. She discusses the five stages of burnout, the rule of no sevens, and the perfect system for perpetual overwhelm. She also gives listeners three important questions to ask themselves. Who am I? Can I slow down to speed up? And where do I come alive? It's a good reminder to leaders as we start the new year that burnout and overwhelm is not inevitable and that there is a way to avoid it. We hope you enjoy it. Mandy, thanks so much for being on the Leadership Lessons podcast today. You are a former investment banker. You have a doctorate from Cambridge. You're now an executive coach and a podcast host. You're a recovering overachiever. You describe what you do as, I help exhausted overachievers to challenge the BS beliefs of not enoughness. Tell me about that. Well, one thing that I've noticed, and I have fit the profile of this, so I think a lot of people who work with me or read my things or listen to my podcast, they fit the profile that I have and that so many highly driven individuals have. So when I was in my investment banking job, I was driven at any cost. I was a people pleaser, meaning that I was chronically agreeable to working late, coming early, working through weekends, doing whatever needed to be done. And my worth was equated to my success. So I always had this mantra, I do, therefore I am. And it was all about how much money I made, what my title was, what my status was, where I was traveling, which clients I was working with. That really felt like who I was. That also meant that I really wanted external validation because it was all about who I appeared to be on the outside. I was always overwhelmed and yet feeling like I was never moving fast enough or I wasn't quite there yet. I was a perfectionist, meaning I would rarely delegate, which added some self-generated stress to the whole thing. I stopped seeing friends, fitness fizzled out. So life goes really grayscale. I think that when we start, you know, when life starts becoming so small that it all comes about work. And I think the driver in hindsight, the driver for me, and I see this again with so many people who I coach, is that there's this arrival fallacy that if I can just get promoted to partner, if I can just get to the C-suite, then, then I will rest and then I will feel enough, then fill in the blank. So what my passion is now and what my work is now is helping people to really sit and look at their beliefs And with curiosity and compassion, question, is that really true? And how are those beliefs serving you? And how have they helped you to become successful? And which ones have become defunct and are now actually getting in the way? Many leaders fit into exactly that type. But having drive is important in order to reach the top. You have to push yourself and take on new challenges all the time. And that's not a comfortable existence. So how do you balance feeling like you're enough while retaining the motivation to keep challenging yourself? 
Well, we do need stress. It's not about laying on the sofa and eating Doritos and watching afternoon television. We do need some stress in our lives that there is such a thing as healthy stress or adaptive stress. So that's a given. I think that's what can motivate us and, and make us want to go out and create and do in the world. That is a healthy thing. It's when it becomes maladaptive. And I think when those beliefs that we're not enough or that we need to strive and push that can also become maladaptive at a certain stage. So if you think about striving on the one hand and stress on the other, kind of as an X and Y axis, there's a bell curve. There's a sweet spot where there's just the right amount of striving and just the right amount of stress. And we've all been there. We know when we feel engaged, when we feel just a little bit out of our comfort zone, when we have support, when there's also other sources of joy and meaning in our lives. I think it starts to become maladaptive, first of all, when we don't heed the warnings that our body is sending up, when we become so over-identified in this arrival fallacy that if I just push through, then I'll get there, although no one can really define what there is, because as soon as you get the promotion or the shiny object or the bonus, a new there appears. So it's this hall of mirrors. So I think it really starts with self-awareness of knowing where your sweet spot is. Do I have the support that I need? Do I feel just in my stretch zone or am I like stretching into my snap zone? That's, I think, where the red flags start coming up. So finding out what that is for you. Sometimes it can be hard to figure that out by yourself. And that's why the support system, whether it's a mentor or a coach or a colleague, somebody who's observing how you're coping with that stress and knowing when it becomes maladaptive. What should they be looking out for to determine where that point is? Well, I think one thing I saw for myself, and I see this with a lot of the hundreds of leaders that I've coached over the past 15 years, is it's so easy to get up in our heads when we're in a leadership position and when the to-do list is forever growing. It's so easy to disconnect from the body and it's so easy. I, I often thought I was a head on legs. It was just, I was just doing and whatever my head told me to do was just tackle, come at that to-do list. A really great question that my mentor asked me was, can you slow down to speed up? And it bent my brain a little bit when he said that, because oh, what does that mean? And I'm going to fall behind. And I think it's really being able to pull up to 30,000 feet. Get out of your day-to-day -day life and look at which bits are serving you, which bits are draining you. With my clients, I often do something called an energy audit. And I, I have half an hour with them at, at every once in a while, or even do this with myself and just take a sheet of paper and divide it in half. What are the things right now that are energizing me? That could be a hobby. It could be time with my children. It could be meditation, whatever. And then on the other side of that energy audit, what are the things that are draining me energetically so that I feel like a raisin? I'm so dried up. Ugh, the things that I don't want to do. And then looking at that list and getting really honest, is there a fairly even ratio of the things that are energizing me and the things that are draining me? And I'm pretty sure that if somebody uh, takes some time to slow down, to speed up and they look at that and have a cold, hard look at what is the reality right now? What needs to shift in my energizers and my drains? So that would be a, a great first exercise that I would 
suggest somebody does with themselves or with the help of a support system, mentor or coach? I think taking a step back is a good idea because once you are already in an overwhelm, you lose sight of the big picture and you feel you can't stop. You must plow through the workload. And I think it's a classic mistake that new leaders make, which is to think that the answer is just to work harder. And that probably served them well throughout their career, but it won't now. And they have to learn different coping techniques. Is that something you've seen with your clients? I think with people particularly who have been really good team players, there can be this clunky shift between being a a great number two or a number three or even a team captain to then going into leadership. And there's this tendency to over-index into the things that have been really working for you before. And all of a sudden, it's like, if I just work harder, put more effort into it, take on more projects, say yes to more things, there's an expiry date on many of our winning strategies. And I think this is one of the most common challenges I see with leaders who go from being a great number two or team player into actually taking on a leadership role. And then there's a runway to burnout because what got you here, to quote Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there. And it can be incredibly frustrating and put people at risk of burnout when they're trying to do more of what worked before. And it's frustrating when that doesn't work. I mean, I thought of all my old diehard habits when I was in, I see burnout happening in a couple of stages. And when there's a denial stage, it's like, okay, this isn't working and my body is sending up red flares. It might be skin rashes, it might be digestive upsets, it might be weird random headaches, heart palpitations. All of these things can start to happen. Just feeling that jangly irritation and stress and having outsized reactions to small triggers. So these were some of the things that were happening to me as I was going through burnout. I call this the denial phase. It's like, okay, I, I see something is happening, but it's too inconvenient to slow down and to slow down to speed up. Uh, so I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to do more of what I did in the past that worked. So for me, and here I'm sort of compassionately looking at my younger self, more coffee, more weapons grade coffee. Um, you know, that sort of more high intensity interval training because those things had worked in the past. So I, I say this with affection and, you know, I'm almost mocking myself affectionately because it's so ob- it feels so obvious to do more of what you've always done. But that can actually have consequences, which can then lead to the second stage of what I see with my clients and with myself all the time, which is that triage phase which is you might be thinking, oh, this is going to actually require a little more effort. Uh, We're going to need a bigger boat, to quote Jaws. And then it's like, I have to now take this seriously to be able to get back to the old me. So maybe I'll do some yoga, maybe I'll relax at the weekends. And it kind of feels in that phase like I just need to give this some short-term high intensity attention, and then I'll be able to get back to going at the relentless pace that I was before. And the third phase is what I call reluctant surrender. When in spite of the yoga classes and the spirulina tablets and the kale smoothies and all the things that were done in that triage phase to fix it, is that actually this is going to be a much bigger project. And there's this sinking realization of that, like, oh, None of the things that I did in the past are actually going to work this time. 
And this reluctant surrender, it can feel like a death of an identity. So when I left my investment banking job, uh, I had two small children under the age of four. I started two businesses. I probably still had a kind of energetic bankruptcy from my investment banking career. And I absolutely tanked one day in the gym, having upped my coffee intake, having hired a personal trainer to come and do hit training with me. And we were boxing one day and I absolutely collapsed on the floor of the gym. And still, I didn't want to believe it. I went home that day thinking something's wrong with me. I'm weak. I can't hack it. So there's this real, you know, being really hard on oneself. That's also a characteristic that I see. So being in that phase, I started to sink and sink and sink deeper. I had trouble climbing stairs at one stage. Even talking took too much energy. And this just this sense of being completely energetically scooped out, feeling hopeless, this self-loathing because I wasn't able to do. And remember your old mantra, you do, therefore you are. I, I, I couldn't. So I was questioning my worth as a human being. What is even the point of me if I can't be achieving? So there's kind of an ego death that happens too. It's very, very humbling. And then finally, I was in that state for about a year, stewing in my own juices and sitting in my emotional mucky diaper, trying to figure out like, who am I if I'm not this investment banker, if I'm not this, you know, hotshot entrepreneur, who am I? Who am I? And it's a question we never pause to ask ourselves because it's scary, actually. So then some green shoots, stage four is the green shoots where you start to realize like, maybe there is a me without my status and my bonus. Maybe there is more complexity to me than I realized before. And the fifth phase is all about the new way where there's more boundaries, where there's more systems to protect energy. And when there's this connection between the mind and the body. So it's not just about overriding all of the body's dialogue. Our bodies are constantly talking to us. And yet when we're in those phases of moving at speed in those careers, it's so difficult to listen. So by that very long-winded description of the, the five phases, somebody might see where they are. My biggest request would be listen to your body. It's giving you data all day long. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And it's really fascinating to hear. And I'm sorry you had to go through it. I think when people have been very successful in a system, then your identity can become very wrapped up in that role. Um, you know, in our society, often the first question people ask is what you do for a living. So we seem to measure people by their career and achievements. Um, and therefore, it's only natural that people who retire or leave big jobs can struggle with identity afterwards. How did you come to terms with you sort of being you separate from what you achieve? Begrudgingly, uh, I wish I could say that I walked in this this flower-laden path and it was all wonderful, but it was difficult, it was turbulent. I was so invested in who I thought I was. And I thought if I wasn't that shiny leader with the business card, if I wasn't getting a regular bonus, if I wasn't traveling the world, who was I? And I started to get some feedback from people as I was going through my healing process, because again, being the super achiever, I 
I went and did the mindfulness classes. I did the yoga classes. I did Reiki. I sat on mountainsides with shamans in Sedona. I mean, I went all out wild women retreats, working with experts, doctors, you name it. I did it because I was so desperate to get back to the old me. It kind of didn't occur to me that there could be something even better on the other side of that. And I think a real aha moment for me came. I had read this book called The Joy of Burnout by Dr. Dina Glauberman. And I looked her up because that book resonated so powerfully with me. And she lived in London. I thought, great. So I paid a lot of money and had a session with her. And she asked me in the session, she said, Mandy, what if this is the best you're ever going to feel? And I completely puckered up in that moment. I was, I got so feisty inside, but the good girl behavior stayed on the outside. I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. But I thought, no way, no way. And I hadn't surrendered yet because it felt like to explore who I was without that felt like falling into an abyss. There was a nothingness there. And I think what I started to realize getting feedback and having that kind of provocation from people who had gone through that journey as well. What if it wasn't emptiness and nothingness? What if it was spaciousness? And I think being able to be in that place where you can actually think of who am I, who am I in addition to this? I got really interested in reading about a lot of people who are at the end of their lives. There's a, there's a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying that's written by an, an Australian hospice nurse. And, and I got curious about that. Then I started reading about this Harvard study of what constitutes a life well-lived. They had started following these, these college students around at the age of 18 or 19. And I think they're now in their 80s. This study has been going on for about 85 years. It's the longest running study on happiness and a life well-lived. And actually, when you start to read the responses of what constituted a life well lived for this group of individuals, mostly men, nobody said, I had a really fancy job, or I had a really shiny car, and I had a Rolex, or I had this much money, or it was actually about connection. I was a good parent. I had great friends around me. Yeah, I mentored people at work. And the, the thing that was so ironic to me at the time that started to create those green shoots for me was, wow, all of those things that actually give our lives meaning and purpose and constitute a life well lived, those are always the first things that fall away. Fitness, friends, spending time on hobbies. And the research is all there. I was reading last week that surgeons, for example, are much less prone to burnout when they bring a hobby back into their lives, even for a short time. So that, those things all fall away. So I think the first thing I would say is get some space into your life so that you can actually see what matters to me. Is it going to matter to my 85-year-old self whether or not I got promoted this year or in two years' time? What's the trade-off I'll have to make to expedite that promotion, that you know, think, thinking bigger picture. When we're in 
burnout, whatever of those stages might resonate with you, notice how small and compact life gets. It's Life gets so small, it fits in a matchbox. It's all about work. I find it almost frustrating listening to your point because what makes a meaningful life is so well documented that it's almost a cliche. And yet it seems to be so hard to execute. And despite the amount of literature and public conversations about burnout in the last three to five years, we seem to be in the same position. People seem unable to prioritize these things, even though it's been proven through research, that's what matters. So what is blocking us from being able to actively live a life with those values? There might be something about being in survival mode. There's something about when we are in that stress response, when we are in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn for extended periods of time, I think it it doesn't help us to think clearly. It doesn't help us to make good decisions. Plus, you get this system that your nervous system is always on jumper cables. So it's it becomes a very reactive existence. And I think also the inner critic, uh, I've named my inner critic Mine is called Judgy Janet. So Judgy Janet is constantly telling me I have to go faster. If I don't have a break, I'll get the job done quicker. Then I can rest when my to-do list is entirely crossed off. There's something about, which of course we all know is true. The research shows we need to take breaks. We need to recover. We need to recuperate. For athletes, rest day is a training day. And yet as leaders, we don't think that way. So I think there's something about having our our neural circuitry jammed in survival mode. And again, creating that little bit of space. That's why so many of us need to hit a wall because we don't willingly give ourselves space. And that little bit of space matters. Um, I interviewed Alice Delahunty, who's the president of the National Grid's electricity transmission recently. And she runs a 3000 strong team, um, many of whom are in the field and where safety is crucially important. She said she regularly asks herself if she is well rested enough to deal with a crisis. You know, if a big incident happened, do I have enough headspace to think clearly and make the right calls? I, th- I just think that's a really good point because it shows that this is a really business critical issue because not only will you have personal negative impacts from burnout, but you won't be able to perform particularly well at work either, regardless of what you think. Now, burnout is a systemic issue, but individuals also play a role too. So why is burnout so prevalent and why are we so obsessed with achievement? I'll answer your second question first, because I think it, the answer to the, that, the first question grows out of there. A lot of this, I've thought about this a lot. I periodically have uh, Dr. Antonia Kirkby, who's a clinical consultant neuropsychologist who comes onto my podcast. She says a lot of these things happen early. A lot of this programming is laid down very early in life where maybe we had well-intended parents or teachers or mentors or other people around us who praised us for our achievement. And while that's not a bad thing in itself, it's so easy as a child to understand that my worth is, my value is in my achievement. So those messages get laid down. And of course, they get reinforced when you think about it. Somebody who works hard, somebody who you know, pulls out all the stops, somebody who comes early and stays late, they are high-fived for their deep commitment. If their life becomes all about work, if they pay meticulous attention to detail, if they're always that safe pair of hands, they never make a mistake, they're really tough on themselves, it's 
this can lead to eventually, not always, but it can lead to workaholism. And it's the only addiction that we are publicly praised for. There's also something that happens neurochemically. I had Dr. Anna Lemke on my podcast talking about dopamine addiction. And the thing is, when we surprise ourselves by achieving something, it gives us a dopamine hit, which feels wonderful. And then it takes something even bigger next time to give us the same feeling. So if, if you achieve one thing, great, you, you get all the feels. If you do the same thing next time, it sort of falls flat. You need something even bigger. I think one of the key things we can do is to start to become much more self-aware. Am I in perpetual wanting? and craving and needing the next thing, the next dopamine hit? And do I fail to celebrate when that happens or just like, eh, yay, and then move on to the next thing? So I think it's if, if there is the willingness to really look at one's mindset and one's patterns, then some change is possible. But you have to want to look because it can be uncomfortable what you see there. What are the damaging impacts you see about the obsession with achievement among your clients? One thing that I see all the time with senior leaders who I'm coaching, uh, particularly those that have been made redundant, they'll say something like this. I gave 20 years of my life. I gave up spending time with my kids. I gave up my hobbies. I gave everything to this role. And there's a shock often and a grief that follows when they're made redundant from a job that they have given everything to. And it can be such a moment of recalibration and a feeling of guilt, shame, you name it, loads of feelings come up because they never saw it coming. That it was as if over-torquing, overdoing, over-giving was somehow in their mind buying them some kind of safety that they would never be made redundant. They would never be overlooked for promotion. And it just isn't true. I think when somebody is very over-identified with achieving, it's like putting all of your retirement investments into one fund or into one bond or into one commodity. It's a risky strategy because if we are made redundant, if we do get burnt out, if some life event happens and you can't achieve in that moment and you're over identified with your work or with the company that you work for and that's gone all of a sudden it can put you in a very dark place so one of the things that i would suggest people think about too is where are there other ways that i can plug into meaning and purpose and a lot of that will come through cultivating relationships a lot of that will come in what kind of how am i cultivating my friendships how am i adding meaning at work for example how am i growing other people these are the things that at the end of our lives actually matter so diversifying that portfolio for example of where we seek our worth and looking more at relationships and meaning and purpose you believe that burnout is a symptom and not the cause can you explain that underneath burnout there's always some kind of a driver that is pushing us to do more than our bodies want us to do or when it would be sensible to down tools and rest. There's this idea that if I push just that little bit harder, if I do more, if I'm special, 
if I'm willing to override my boundaries, then, see, that's that arrival fallacy, then I will get that juice of whatever it is, the, the promotion or whatever dopamine hit is that we're after. And I think underneath that is usually a feeling, and this is what I see with myself and with so many of the people that I coach, is that somehow I am not enough. There's a terror of mediocrity and ordinariness that can cause so many highly intelligent people to over-index into pushing themselves beyond their limits. There's a proving energy. I can do this. I can hack it. Um, so I think there's, as I said, it's very, very complex. What advice do you have for leaders to avoid burnout? There's an exercise I do with practically every senior leader who I coach, which is the perfect system exercise. So I invite the person to take out a sheet of A4 paper. We're doing this old school with a pen and paper, not on an iPad. And we're going to get a little bit cheeky with ourselves here. So in the center of the circle, so I'll talk to, I'll talk to you, Kate, as if I were doing it myself. So I'll talk about Mandy's perfect system for perpetual exhaustion or for chronic burnout or whatever it is that you want for overwhelm. So that's in the center. And then we're drawing these satellites, almost like a sun. And you start to think you're almost in a way being provocative and a little bit comical with yourself. So my perfect system, don't ask for help. Do everything yourself because I believe only I can do it this well. And then you're starting to think you're filling in the other uh, pieces off of the, off of the center. Um, Over-caffeinate myself right? So that I'm completely on jumper cables all the time. Work really late so that my brain is fried and I can't possibly sleep. Start the day with more caffeine. Get rid of all the friends and fun in my calendar so I can work more. You see, it's kind of comical. There's a bit of a cheeky tone to it, but there's so much truth to it. And you start to see what patterns are keeping you stuck in perpetual overwhelm. You know, the be a perfectionist, work at weekends, work every night, all of those sorts of things. Quit my hobbies. Yeah. Make sure my, my children make their own dinner, you know, not, not do anything fun. Farm out my dog walks so I don't get any fresh air. All of those things that you start to see all the ways that we actually have some agency in doing something differently. And then I use that perfect system. It's usually people laugh. It's a bit bittersweet when they look at that because like, oh, this is actually kind of funny. But then I start to see how much uh, possibility there is where I'm causing self-generated stress. So the second thing we do is then we start to work on boundaries as a result of looking at that perfect system. What do I need to say no to? Because often what I see is there's way more freedom that we're not using. So I could say no to that, but I've created a story that this would happen if I said no to that. And we catastrophize. If I said no to that project, ooh, probably won't get promoted. So I have to say yes to this. So we really start to craft putting some boundaries in place and giving some, you know, talking back to your inner critic a little bit. Is that really true? Can I know for absolutely certain that that's true? So again, it's the whole theme of slowing down just a little bit and interrogating some of those inner voices or some of those ingrained habits. 
And you start to realize that then you can conduct a series of experiments. What if I tried just for the next week to say no to a few things? Then we start to gather some data points like, oh, it's actually okay for me to say no to that meeting on Thursdays that I'd, I thought I had to be at, but nothing bad happened. Or if I stop reading messages at 6 p.m., do I really need to check my phone at midnight? Do I really need to check my phone in the middle of the night? So it's really starting to do that two-step of boundaries and experiments and boundaries and experiments. And you start to realize, huh, there's a lot more agency that I'm not tapping into. And then the third thing I would suggest is what will you do to fill your tank? Because those have been the things that I almost guarantee you have fallen out of your life. So going back to the piece about the surgeons who took up playing guitar or doing their paint by numbers or baking cupcakes or whatever it was that made their heart sing, their level of burnout decreased. And it doesn't mean that you have to cannonball in and you know take an intensive six month guitar course or whatever it is for you, but even bringing 15 or 20 minutes of that into your week can have massive, massive results. So again, use that as an experiment. What do I want to bring a little bit more of? Those are all helpful ideas. I think the sheet of paper game is smart because it depersonalizes the problem and helps people assess it in a more objective way. And I think that a lot of overwhelm is a sense of powerlessness. So it's useful to show people that they have more power than they think. And the experimental mindset keeps coming up again and again on this podcast, but I think it can help people see results in a, in what feels like a safe way. So here's what I, I tell anybody who's struggling with boundaries. Use this phrase, may I get back to you? Because that way you can think things through and make yourself a pros and cons list if, if that's how you roll or compose yourself. But I think, may I get back to you? And you can say a time frame, may I get back to you by the end of the day? May I get back to you by tomorrow? That way it just, that's a great experimental first step to see what happens. Then once you've composed yourself, once you decide this is a no for me, and I always do that kind of check-in, there's a couple of different ways to check in that can be very useful. Is again, get out of your head, don't be a head on legs, check in with your body. Does this feel good to me? And I mean, you can't, all, sometimes you have to say yes to things that you don't want to say yes to, but we're not talking about those things. We're talking about the things where you have agency. So your body is filled with clues. Again, remember, our bodies are always talking to us. So sometimes we have wisdom in our gut. And just for a moment, closing your eyes, checking in with your gut. Is this a good idea? Do I want to do this? And just listening to what bubbles up. So that kept me one way to check in. Another way that is my favorite method is something I learned from Tim Ferriss, which is the rule of no sevens. So if you put a scale of one to 10 on, and somebody asks you to do something or to attend an event, you say, may I get back to you? And then you go away and think about it. One being, I can't think of anything more horrendous. I definitely don't want to do this to 10. Yay, jazz hands. I'm so excited. I really want to do this. So if you need some time to think about it, you eliminate the seven. Seven is insidious because that's where stuff ends up in our diary that we look at and it drains our energy and we say, Ugh, I have to do that thing today. So the rule of no sevens is when you're asked for something that you, you have the power to yes or no, 
the rule of no sevens, if it's a zero or one to six, pretty clear what the answer is going to be. And if it's an eight, nine, or 10, it also really helps that clarification process. It's the sevens that are insidious. So those are two things you can try. You say you are a recovering people pleaser. What advice do you have for others to avoid those thought patterns? As you start to explore that question I brought up earlier, who am I? What is, what is something that only I can do? And really starting to think about where our value add is and spending more time in um, Gay Hendricks, the author, has this thing where he talks about our zone of genius, our zone of excellence, our zone of competence. And like the sevens in Tim Ferriss' setup, our zone of excellence is insidious because these are things that we can do and we're very good at them, but they're also things that other people could do. And that's why I think holding on to doing too many things that are in your zone of excellence can also be, um, maybe it's good for our ego because we like to feel needed, especially as people pleasers, but it's also that something that drains our battery and it keeps us out of really exploring our authentic value and what it means to be an authentic leader. Starting to get more and more clear on what is in my zone of genius. What are the things that if I were not in this conversation, if I were not at this table, if I were not on this team, what would be missing? Like what is the secret sauce that only I have that nobody else could really replicate. And a lot of that comes into the being skills. It's not just the doing. The doing is important, but when we're in that burnout, life goes at pace and we just do, 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 do. We forget that our secret sauce is also about how we're being while we're doing. How am I, how am I bringing calm into this situation? How am I bringing energy into this situation? How am I talking to other people to pull the best out of them? And that's not a doing thing. That's a, that's a, I call this the Frank Sinatra approach. It's the do, be, do, be, do, be, do. It's the doing and the being together. And how do we bring that out in somebody? The being, that's what the zone of excellence, or sorry, sorry, the zone of genius is all about really getting clear on what's my What's my value add that feels really authentic and good and that it's exactly in that sweet spot place of like, where am I doing? Where am I slightly out of my comfort zone? Where do I come alive? What a lovely question to ask yourself. My very last question is, what is your biggest leadership lesson? If you are burnt out, overwhelmed, you're functioning at speed on autopilot, this is a red flag to ask yourself. Have I squeezed out all the things in my life that feel good and fun? And if you pull up to 30,000 feet and take a long, hard look, has my life lost all of its color and gone to grayscale? And is my 80-year-old self facepalming watching me living my current life? That's a very powerful way to end. Thank you so much, Mandy, for your time. That was fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners will have got a lot from that as they start to think about quite a few questions there to think about for the year ahead. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.